You're familiar with the Pledge of Allegiance, but do you know its history? In 1892, the beginning lines were first written by a man named Francis Bellamy. Bellamy was a Baptist pastor, and he was also a socialist. He preached against the evils of capitalism and therefore was run out of his church in Boston. Bellamy, he believed that if mankind were dedicated enough, we could reach a utopian type of society right here on earth right now. When he wrote the beginning lines of the Pledge of Allegiance, it was first written in a children's magazine, and it was written to just kind of establish the unity between the states. He wrote, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 25 years later, there was this growing concern about the many immigrants who were pouring into our country that they would not know what that phrase, my flag, stood for. So in 1923, it was amended to, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. One year later, the little phrase of America was added. 30 years after that, in an attempt to differentiate America from different communist and atheist countries around the world, the phrase under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. At that time, President Dwight Eisenhower wrote, from this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and schoolhouse, this patriotic oath in public prayer. Fifty years after that, a man named Michael Newdow, he was an atheist father of a third grader, he challenged the state of California because the teacher led the classroom of his daughter in this public prayer, the Pledge of Allegiance. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with Newdow and declared that leading a class in the Pledge of Allegiance was unconstitutional. Then, in 2004, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that decision. However, when the United States Supreme Court reversed the decision, it kind of sidestepped the issue of the legality of the pledge in a, in, a, in a schoolroom. Instead, it reversed the decision because at the time, Newdow was um, in a custody battle with his former wife. And so the Supreme Court said that Newdow didn't have the authority to act on behalf of his daughter because he didn't have custody at the time. You understand the role of government in our relationship to our government has always been a sticky subject. It's been a sticky subject here in America, but it's been a sticky subject in every generation in every country around the world. That's probably why God took so much time to tell us about the purpose of government, our relationship to government, and the purpose and mission of the church. And so as we're entering into an election this next week, we are starting this election time series titled, Where is Our Hope? Is it in government or is it in Jesus? We're going to look. It's going to be a fascinating series. And this week we're focusing in on what is the purpose of government and what is the purpose of the church. Paul would have a lot to write about that, as we'll see. Let's check it out. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So it's important to understand the background behind this letter that Paul is writing to the Romans. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, there's no record of any Christian involved in the Roman Senate. There's no Christian lobbyist group petitioning Roman government to enact certain laws. There's no watchdog committee making sure that the interests of Christians are looked out for. There's no even court of appeals that the church could appeal to if they were being persecuted or mistreated. In fact, shortly after this, the barbarians would soon set fire to Rome and Nero would blame it on the Christians and the persecution of the church would intensify. And you know, Paul knew firsthand the persecution of the church. At least three times he was beaten with rods by Roman magistrates. He knew full well that Christians were suffering the hardship, the, the persecution that they were enduring, the hardship, the death that was being perpetrated upon them. He wasn't naive to any of this. Paul also knew full well of this building Jewish resistance. He would not have been surprised to learn that shortly after his death, the Jews would, the Jews would stage three uprisings, three revolts against the Roman government. In all three times, what basically happened is the Roman government increased her power and grew stronger. So, with this uprising of Jewish resistance, and at the same time, the persecution of the church, you can imagine that the church is looking at this uprising Jewish resistance, and they're, they're being tempted to sympathize with their Jewish counterparts. And this is concerning to Paul, because too much attention from the church is being given to government, as opposed to the true mission of the church. And so to these people who are struggling with how do we relate to a, to a government, an evil government, an oppressive government, a government that had beaten Paul simply because of his faith in the gospel, he writes to these people and he says, don't overthrow Rome. Instead, let every person be subject to governing authorities. And we want to take a step back and say, come on, Paul, look how evil Rome is. They need to be overthrown. We need a better government in there. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, let each person be subject to their governing authorities. And this is not a suggestion. It is a command. Now, at the same time, we can think of numerous examples in Scripture, can't we, where uh, people are disobedient to the government and it seems as if it's celebrated, right? I mean, we're just coming off the study of Exodus and how Moses is born in a condition where Egyptian law says he should be killed, he should be murdered, but because of the plans of his mother, Moses is allowed to live and we celebrate that. 
You know, there's the classic example of Peter and John when they stand before the Jewish court and the Jewish court tells them, hey, you can't be spreading the gospel anymore. You've got to stop preaching Jesus. And what do they say? We obey God rather than men. And so we're left with this tension. Just what are we to make of Paul's command here that we are subject to governing authorities when there are definitely times, even in Scripture, where people are disobedient to the government and it is celebrated. See, it's important to understand that while submission is usually expressed through obedience, these two are not one and the same. Submission and obedience are not the same thing. It is possible to be submissive and to be disobedient at the same time because submission is much more broad. It's much more basic than obedience. Submission recognizes a subordinate place in a hierarchy that God has established. Submission recognizes a subordinate place in the hierarchy of which God has established. It acknowledges that certain institutions and certain people have been placed over us and therefore they are given this right to our respect and our, and our deference. So, Implicit in this idea of submission is the need to recognize that God is at the hierarchy. He is at the pinnacle of this entire hierarchy. And we, we know about submission through, through scripture. And it's not just that citizens are submissive to our government. It's the children are submissive to their parents, wives to their husbands. There, there is this created order of things. And at the, higher, the highest pinnacle of it all is God. And so while we are submissive, we are not always obedient if that submission would cause conflict with a greater submission to God. If that obedience would cause conflict with a greater submission to God. Now, we might disagree on when disobedience is warranted, but we should never disagree on this. Christians are to submit to our government. Christians submit to government. Why is that? Paul says because the governing authorities have been instituted by God and there is no authority except that which is given by God. So, to the church in Rome, if you want to join the Roman resistance, you are resisting an authority that God has created and that is wrong and you will receive judgment for that. That's what Paul writes to the, to the church in Rome. And in our culture, it seems as if resistance is the word of the day, doesn't it? I mean, we, we love to resist. We want to, we want to resist. And we have a hard time with this passage because we immediately think, well, isn't it right to resist certain presidents or maybe certain governors? Isn't it right to resist evil leaders like Mao or Hitler or, or Stalin or Castro? Isn't it right to resist Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or, or, or Nero? I mean, we think there have to be certain governments that are just pure evil where resistance is necessary. Not, not merely submissive disobedience, but resistance is needed. That seems logical to us. Yet as we explore scripture, we find nothing about mounting some kind of cultural resistance war. In fact, even from God himself, we find just the opposite. You remember when Jesus was being arrested in the garden and the soldiers come and there's crowds there and they arrest him. And 
Peter, he sees what's happening and he knows this whole thing is a joke. It's a travesty of government. And so what does Peter do? He uses the same weapons that this unjust government is using against them. And he pulls out his sword and he slices off the ear of that soldier. And can you imagine the silence there for a moment and how this melee was just about to ensue? You get the calm before the storm. Except before the storm happens, Jesus reaches out and heals the man's ear, stopping the pain of the one who came to bring him pain. And then Jesus looked at Peter. And do you remember what he said? He said, Peter, I could have called 12 legions of angels. You know what he was saying? I could have stopped all this right now if I, if I wanted to, but I have given them this authority even if they are exercising it in an unjust way for a time. And then just a short time later, you remember what happens next? P Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate's grilling Jesus with questions. Jesus isn't answering anything. An, an exasperated Pilate looks at Jesus. Why don't you answer my questions? Don't you know that I have the authority to determine whether you live or die? And you remember what Jesus says, don't you? You have no authority except that which is given to you by my Father in heaven. In other words, yeah, you have authority, but there is even a greater authority. And then Jesus, after that, he says, for this reason, the one who delivered me to you is in even greater sin. See, if you think just because government has this authority that is granted by God, that is derived from God. It's not derived from the consent of the governed. It is derived from God. And if you think because of that, the, the government can do whatever it wants, Jesus says, hey, Pilate, you may have this authority, but you're going to be held accountable for how you exercise that authority. The one who delivered me over to you, he's going to face an even greater judgment, but you're going to be judged too for how you are exercising your authority at this time. And so after that, Paul, Paul, once he establishes the fact that all authority in government is given by God, therefore we have a responsibility to submit to this government, not always to obey, but always to submit. Then Paul, he kind of outlines what a good government looks like. And he says, this is the mission, this is the purpose of government. And he paints this picture for how government is to exercise its authority. And he says, it is the government's responsibility to restrain and punish evil. Government is to be a, a terror to bad conduct. See, even when government refuses to acknowledge the one true God, when it restrains and punishes evil, it is representing the character of God. Because there ought to be penalties for doing wrong. And it is the government's job to enact those penalties. See, in, in Romans 12, they're having this debate. Hey, can I just seek vengeance on my own? Can I just eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? And I just take matters into my own hands. And then in Romans 13, as Paul describes the role, the mission, the authority of government, he says, no, vengeance is not for you. This is what a good government does. This, this is part of God's purpose for government. And by the way, the job of a good government is to fairly and equitably dole out punishment for evil. Regardless of who you are, what you look like, where you're from, what possessions you have, what connections you have. If you've done evil, government without bias at its best will punish that evil fairly and equitably. But beyond simply punishing evil... 
It's the government's responsibility to approve and to promote what is good. Government at its best is to set up policies and systems that encourage and normalize good behavior. A wise government, a good government, will establish laws that lead to the fair execution of justice, that will encourage the pursuit of a healthy family life, that will establish economic conditions that that promote hard work and productivity. I mean, you look at any positive attribute in Scripture, and you want a government that, that promotes that and encourages that wherever possible and that never hinders it. And at the same time, you want a government that does not reward practices that are evil or detrimental to the health of an individual because that will eventually lead to the breakdown of the health of society. But understand this, just because society's health breaks down doesn't mean the church breaks down. The church can thrive under any circumstance. We'll get to that a little bit later. Paul would write to Timothy and he would say, pray for our government that they would lead in such a way that we could live good, quiet, peaceful lives that are godly and dignified in every way. And so this is the type of government in this election season, this is the type of government that we want to vote for. We, we want to vote for the government that will best restrain evil and promote good. But that's it. I mean, that's just the promote. That's just the purpose, the mission of government. When government acts in this way, they act as God's servant. And the word servant that Paul uses here is the same word that's translated deacon. Government is to act as this deacon of God, helping to govern society in a way that will restrain evil and promote good. And then how do we respond to that? We submit to government. Whether good or bad, we submit, and whether good or bad, we pay taxes. That's it. And Paul, he's concerned that the church in Rome is missing the mark in its relationship to government because he knew the dire consequences that would bring, that would happen if you miss the role of government and you confuse it with the role of the church. You know what? I'm concerned today that the church is missing the mark in our relationship to our government. Because you understand, the greatest danger in America is not the degradation of our culture. The greatest danger in America is not the erosion of biblical values from the public square. The greatest danger in America is not the removal of God from our textbooks or from our courthouses. It's not even a society that slips to look further and further like Sodom and Gomorrah. The greatest danger in America is a church that has forgotten her first love. A church who does not believe that making disciples who who make disciples is worth giving our lives to. A church that believes that all that's too slow and instead looks for just advocating laws and seeing laws passed and considering that a greater victory. The greatest danger in America is a church who forgets that our relationship to society is not to reform it, but to redeem it. You reform a society from the outside in. You redeem it from the inside out. You don't reform society 
We redeem society. And you can't redeem it with just moral activism. You redeem society by introducing people to the person of Jesus Christ. The church's mission is not to make bad people good or to make good people better. It's to make dead people alive. And you do that by introducing them to Jesus. Morality doesn't do that. Only Jesus can do that. And so the mission of the church... It's not to clean up the evils of society, but to disciple people in such a way that they are changed, that they are transformed. When the church takes on the mission of government rather than her mission, everybody loses. And we see the ugly stains that are left behind throughout the course of history. I mean, you look back at the history of Europe and you see what happens when the church tries to take on the mission of government. The classic case in America was the church's role in the prohibition laws. You remember what happened? The church lobbied and lobbied and lobbied for alcohol to be outlawed, and the church won. The law was passed. But because the church took on the role of governing rather than her mission of making disciples, the consequences were terrible. It opened the door for all types of crime and corruption. Millions and millions and millions of dollars were funneled into the most seedy parts of our society. And popular opinion toward that law, well, it soured quickly. And the church lost respect in the community. It began to decline as people soured against the church and lost respect because her mission was compromised because the church thought the victory was a law instead of a person. Things went bad. Understand this. You could take our society today and every law that you want to see passed, and they would be good laws. Uh, Homosexual marriage could be illegal. Abortion could be outlawed. Uh, Prayer could be back in the classroom. The Ten Commandments could be hung in every courthouse. And if all of that were to take place, would the mission of the church be advanced? No, just the mission of government. And that's good. We want the mission of government to be advanced, but that is not our purpose. Our purpose is the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is not the advocacy of law. It's to make disciples who make disciples. I mean, you think of it. What what if we had just this great victory in Washington? This election season, every single congressman, every single senator, every Supreme Court justice, the president, everybody in any kind of power around our country was a strong evangelical believer who governed according to the truths of Scripture, restraining evil and promoting good. If that were to happen, would the church just wipe the sweat off her brow and think mission accomplished, our work is finished? I'm afraid too many would. Because we have, got, we have forgotten the nature of our mission. That is all the nature of government. And that would be good to make good laws that restrain evil and promote good. But you understand this. The government at her best, even when she's making these type of laws, government can never make a mother love her child. Government can never make a husband love his wife. Government can never reach into the darkness of humanity apart from Jesus and fix that. You understand, that is the mission of the church. And the church does that by introducing the mother, by introducing the husband, by introducing the person 
to Jesus. And then a relationship with Jesus Christ transforms them from the inside out. The mission of the church is far greater than the mission of the government. And when we dilute the mission of the church and we confuse it with the mission of the government, things, terrible consequences happen because that's not our mission. Perhaps the biggest issue in the church today is that we become distracted, distracted with the mission of government, believing the logic that if we just get certain laws passed, we've won the victory. But that victory is not a victory of the church. It is a victory of the government. Victory for the church is not changing behavior of our culture. Victory for the church is making dead people alive, seeing them discipled so that they can then disciple others. The church's victory is introducing people to Jesus and seeing their lives transformed. And you understand the hope for Washington, the hope for America is the same thing ultimately as the hope for our next door neighbor. It's that they would know Jesus and have their lives, their worldview, everything radically transformed from the inside out. That's our mission. It's a great mission. It's a privilege to be a part of this. And you look at Paul's method for kind of reforming society. He wasn't concerned with reforming society at all. He went to the most difficult places in the world at the time. He went to Rome and Athens and Corinth and all of these just amazingly difficult places. He never started a campaign to kind of clean up the morality of a city. He never tried to organize a lobbyist group. He went to deliver the good news of Jesus Christ so that people would become new creations in Christ and then their hopes for society would be reversed because of their understanding of God's word. See, one of the things that Paul desperately wants for the church to understand is that government has its mission and the church has her mission, but we're not to confuse the two. We're not to kind of usurp that and try to do that. We're to focus on our mission. A moral government and a moral nation is not necessary to have a thriving church. I mean, you read the letter to the Romans, and just from that letter alone, you understand how depraved, how wicked this society is. Everything from the corrupt tax policies to the evil sexual ethic of the day, it was all horrible. And yet it was in that century that God chose to plant and to begin his living church. And the church thrived. It thrived in the most oppressive kind of situations. You understand it is not necessary for the church to be free and to have influence in society in order for the church to thrive. I mean, the underground church in communist China, it is thriving. It is growing. It is expanding at a much faster rate than here in free America. In fact, we're declining here in America. Why? Because the church is called to be a lighthouse. And have you ever noticed that a lighthouse does not calm a storm? A lighthouse doesn't, doesn't go in and say, okay, we're, we're not going to let this storm happen. We're going to calm the waters. Everything's going to be better because the lighthouse is here. No, a lighthouse simply tells people where to go in the storm. And sometimes when the culture is darkest, when the weather is harshest, that's when the lighthouse shines brightest. You understand our, our hope is not in reversing cultural trends, 
The moment we believe that is the moment that we just kind of give up our mission of making disciples and instead just want to give the culture a bath and try to get better laws passed so that there's behavioral and morality reform. The mission of the church is much bigger than that. That's all the mission of government, and that's important. But the mission of the church is greater, and it is a mission that can be accomplished whether government is good or bad. The question the church in Rome was facing was, do we join in the resistance or do we focus on making disciples? It's a question that Christians have faced in every century, isn't it? Do we focus on preaching socialism or capitalism or do we focus on preaching the gospel? See, the answer to that question, well, it all comes from where's your hope? Is it in Jesus or government? Heavenly Father, we thank you that our hope is in you. And because of that, we have a clarity of mission that is to go and make disciples who are able to make disciples. God, we pray for a government that would accomplish her mission of restraining evil and promoting good. But God, help us never to confuse our mission to go and make disciples. It is a greater mission and it is a privilege to be a part of it. Help us to execute our mission well. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.